0: Welcome to Teachers Care Society, the podcast that talks about all news and development in the educational field. We have a good show for you today as I'm joined by Andrew Hong, a teacher from Orange County, California, and we'll be discussing school districts being able to choose their own reading assessments. So without further ado, let's jump right in. All right, welcome back to Teachers Care Society. Our first guest for today is Andrew Hong. A little bit of Andrew Hong. He is a teacher from Orange County, California. Uh, a little bit about him, he has a dual credential from California State University of Long Beach. A credential multiple subject and a credential in SPED, mild, moderate. He also has a degree in child development and family studies, also from California State University of Long Beach. So Andrew, why did you choose the field of education?
1: Yes, I chose the field of education because I was uh, gardening with my uncle and I was going to take over his business. And I found that that wasn't my calling. My sister asked me if I would like to be a teacher because she's an elementary school teacher at Hazard Elementary and Garden Grove. And I told her that um, that might be a good idea. She suggested it because she saw that I was able to get along with young children really well. And I went to pursue a degree in child education, child development before I uh, pursued my uh, credential. One thing that I wanted to accomplish as a teacher is to close the achievement gap between children um who have limited resources like compared to their counterparts, children living in high affluent societies uh, that have many resources available to them. I hope that as a teacher, I can do my best and to provide a high quality, equitable education for all student learners.
0: Wow, it's a great story. So um, let's go ahead and jump into our first topic and topic number one is North Carolina Superintendent of Public Instruction, Mark Johnson, Announced recently that next school year, starting of fall 2020, districts will be able to choose which K through third assessment platform they want to use. And jumping into this, let's go over some key statistics. And the statistics that came out of this study were that Hispanic and Black students will have the greatest learning loss due to COVID-19. And the reason behind this is students of Black that are black and Hispanic, usually even school areas or districts that normally don't have much funding for, as you said earlier, closing the gap or even just assessments in general.
1: I agree with uh, the fact that many school districts are not the same. The resources are limited, depending on which districts you are part of and the types of assessments that can be Made available for teachers are not all the same, and those assessments are vital uh, to assessing what the students uh, need to know, understand, and are able to do. And those assessments, they're going to be able to uh, measure those things correctly and to further guide education purposes. But when teachers part of a district who doesn't have the resources and they are using only universal screening methods to identify uh, low performing readers a lot of the time those students don't get the full high quality attention that they need or aren't truly diagnosed correctly and they aren't provided with the services that would benefit them the most to increase their student outcomes
0: yeah and this whole covid-19 has been a big struggle for everyone not only the teachers and the students and families but just the whole community in general. And out of the study that happened, they found out that there are four categories. The first category is those who uh, are students who experience average quality remote learning. So that means they continue to progress, but slower pace than they would be if they had remained in school. The second category is those students who are getting lower quality remote learning. So basically they're generally uh, stagnating at their current grade levels. So they're not making progress at all. And then there's a third category, which are students who are not getting any instruction whatsoever, and they're actually losing significant ground. And unfortunately, the last category is students who ultimately drop out of school altogether. So four categories. First category is those who are still learning, but at a very slow pace. Second, those who are just stagnant, they're not really learning much. They're at a just continuing the same instruction they have now. Those who aren't really learning anything at all who are losing ground. And the last one is students who unfortunately drop altogether. Now, Andrew, in the schools that you've been working at ever since this COVID-19, what would you say your students, which category would they fall under?
1: I'd say the category they fall under the most is um, loss of learning due to the COVID-19 there's less instructional time for the majority of the students and there's no real accountability for them for a small majority of the students we knew we know that they did not attend the long distance learning Uh, Google Meets that we had and they lost out completely on any kind of education or further growth for their learning. Yeah.
0: And that's, it's all very unfortunate. And I, you know, as a teacher, you obviously want to give the best instruction. You you try and do as much as you can, whether that's constant phone calls, emails, any kind of communication. I even heard of some teachers that will reach out to the, the families actually visiting their houses, trying to see what's going on. Is there anything you need? Do you need internet access? Do you need food? And a teacher or just any educator can only do so much, but at the end of the day, it's some things are out of our control.
1: Right. I mean, we had Chromebooks available for the parents to come pick up and some of those parents refused to pick those Chromebooks up, therefore not letting their children have access to the content of the lessons or the learning that was taking place inside the classrooms, the virtual classrooms. It's very sad to see that, you know, students that I had a relationship with and uh, had built during face-to-face teaching, I no longer saw them when uh, long-distance learning started. And I have yet to hear from them or see them or anything till this day.
0: And it's also important not to, just because a student wants to learn, they want to get the resources, they want to attend school and for whatever, what reason it may be that the parents or the families aren't able to get the resources at school, whether that's the Chromebook or a tablet, or they just don't come up to pick up the supplies. It's important not to villainize the parents because sometimes the parents don't have a choice. They might be, they just might not have that time because I know some parents in in the school district that they're registered nurses or they're essential workers or they just they get off work at 3 a.m. and they come home tired. And unfortunately, they don't have the luxury that time of day to go out and stop by the school.
1: Right. Absolutely. There was a few students who were literally on the move, signed in and logged into our virtual classrooms as well, trying to participate. But due to their a family situation, and they were unable to have a quiet, calm learning environment in front of a computer on a desk. Many of my students were in their beds, uh, sitting up uh, with two or three brothers and sisters hanging on them. So it was very uh, difficult for them to give their entire focus and energy into the lessons that were planned.
0: And we've all seen cases where a student will be in a Zoom call or a Google Meet's call, and they're in the car with their parents on the way to the grocery store or on the way home, and and then for them that might be the only time that they that they have to engage in the virtual learning. But let's uh, let's jump in back to the topic about assessments, and let's go over what the purpose of assessments are. I know you briefly mentioned it earlier, but the reason why school districts have assessments is all about accountability, just whether or not the students are learning the content and based on the data, they can make data-driven decisions, whether or not to promote the student to the next grade level, whether they're sufficient, whether they met the expectations, below expectations or above expectations.
1: Right. And these assessments will give districts, also teachers, uh, understanding of what the students know and what they're capable of. Uh, However, that's some of these assessments only do that. They don't tell us specific detail of what they're having trouble with the most. And that's a huge problem because those readers that are identified as having difficulty reading or struggling, they might fall into intervention groups or small groups that don't address their specific needs.
0: Exactly. Because right now, I think currently the assessments tell whether a student is at risk for for SPED. But since there are some tests that are just way too generic and you can't actually pinpoint what it is a student is struggling with. And either the teacher has to give another uh, assessment or the student might be placed on an intervention uh, for the wrong reason or might be receiving the wrong help. And that's time wasted for both the student and the teacher as well.
1: Absolutely. It's very hard to target uh, what the student's actual need is or what uh, they are having difficulty with without a clear understanding and a real good diagnostic test that will allow for specific details to be found out. I like what you said about uh, these tests that are so specific are available to students in special education, but are currently unavailable to students in the general education population. I believe that uh, many and all students in the general education population can benefit from these tests.
0: Exactly. So this is one of those things where, yes, it's great for the students who really need it, but everyone can benefit benefit from it. There's never such thing as too good of an instruction. There's never such thing as like too much of a good thing especially when it comes to education like this. And so ever since North Carolina decided that they were going to have their districts choose their own assessments for K through third, Andrew and I talked about some positive outcomes that might be as a result of this. And one of the outcomes that we discuss is, that this is meant to empower school districts in choosing their own assessments.
1: When school districts are able to choose their own assessments, I believe that it will greatly empower not only the school district's ability to teach students, but it will also help everybody that's involved in education and learning. What I mean by that is, after using those types of assessments, then more data will be available for other districts around the United States to see whether or not if the if it actually was beneficial or a waste of time to choose your own assessments.
0: And again, this all goes back to what you said about the more accurate an assessment is, then the more accurate the instruction can be for the students, you know, more individualized testing to cater the needs of the students. And I know you said the assessments help students who are at risk and those for the SPED students. But think about all the other students who could benefit, like the ELL. You also have GATE students. There are many different students that can benefit from these assessments. That They're very, very specific. And when the school districts have the power to choose, they're able to actually really cater to it. That they really know their students. They should know the population, the community, they should know how to best assess all these students. And these could even be student self-assessment as an option, but we can actually talk about that a little bit later. So when it comes for the district, school districts choosing their own assessments, it is essentially like going to a grocery store and shopping for what you think is best. You know, getting the best ingredients, to best cater the needs of your students and when the school districts go shopping obviously there's going to be some assessments that are more expensive than other ones and right off the top we know that the more comprehensive tests are more expensive than the generic test what do you think the discrepancy could be in this when it comes to school districts shopping around for the assessments
1: i believe that there's going to be a huge discrepancy because like we all said before some school districts have more money than other school districts to spend on these types of assessments. It's going to be really important that the school districts take time to analyze and to do shopping around and not just quickly pick any type of assessment that might fit their budget, but they really need to find a uh, assessment that aligns with their standards. One that's an assessment that's going to be reliable, it's going to be valid, and it's not biased in any way, shape, or form.
0: So I know each school district has different, you know, different scores. And so when the scores come out, for example, a school district might have really high scores in math, but then another school district might have low scores in English. You got to take that into consideration when shopping around for the assessments. And so like, we don't really need to have this kind of assessment for maybe these students who are excelling in a particular content area. Yes, we can have an assessment that you know that let us know whether they're meeting standards, uh, whether above standards or uh, below standards. But if I really want to focus in on what they're struggling with, whether that's English, science, or history, I should go shopping around for assessments that really cater towards that content area. I, as a school district, as a as a superintendent, or as a principal, should know these things about my students, and I should really target the assessments to meet these areas. that I need the most help. So for those school districts that cannot afford the more expensive, comprehensive testing, what options do you see for those school districts?
1: That's always a good question. Where's the money going to come from? I believe fundraising can be seen as an option for some of these districts. However, fundraising can bring in, I heard at most that Jogathon brought in seven, little over $7,000 one year, uh, which is nothing compared to the cost of these assessments. Other options are asking the community for help, business owners, and most importantly, applying for grants.
0: Uh, just to give an estimate, like the cost of higher quality assessments, they're in the $1,000 range. This, and if you want to get, yes, there might be some discount if you get bulk, but if you really, really want a comprehensive test, we're talking in the, in the thousands for, for some of these tests. And as you can imagine, not every district will have the budget to spend this kind of money. Maybe they might have money to spend maybe only 50 when they should be getting a hundred for the other students as well. And. Everything costs money. Unfortunately, everything costs money and not all school districts will have a fair chance of getting the best assessments that they need for their school districts and for their students. And here is a little fact. So studies have shown that states spend about $1.7 billion every year on standardized testing. So if we break that down, so it... Estimates about roughly each state spending just about $669 million each year on primary assessment contracts. And the thing to take in consideration, why are these tests so expensive? It's just because of the quality control. Um, and obviously, quality control costs get higher and higher. I you try to squeeze out the... Uh, the 1% or the 0.01% or the 0.001% error of the process, because there is always an error uh, percentage with every assessment. And the smaller that error percentage is, the, the more expensive those tests, those assessments can be. So if you're wondering why these tests cost so much, there's part of your answer right there. Now, with... Discrepancies in lower income areas or school districts that don't have as much funding. The studies have shown that in lower income areas, teachers who are spending all their time with small group intensive intervention with at risk students. That means the students who are at grade level or above grade level are usually doing individual Student work, And the reason behind this is because the teachers are putting all their effort and time trying to get these students who are below expectations, these students who are labeled at risk, and sh- the teachers are trying to get them at- to meet the expectations, to meet them at grade level, while the students who are actually at grade level or actually above grade level, they're usually doing their own individual work or maybe group work because the teacher just doesn't have that time to give to them that attention and that instruction. While on the opposite spectrum, you have higher income areas where teachers are putting in all the time and effort into high quality instruction for the whole class. So the teacher can spend that time, that effort into the whole class instruction because they have those resources. And some of those resources include maybe more one on one, a smaller intervention, and all this stems from the assessments. If a stu- school district is able to give the really comprehensive assessment, then they can quickly and easily pinpoint the needs that these students have. And those needs can be addressed easier instead of taking in another assessment or instead of taking or just playing a guessing game like, oh, we know Sally struggles with reading, but we don't know what it is. She struggles with the read reading. Maybe it's a consonant, maybe it's a vowels, maybe it's compound words. Maybe it's we don't know, as opposed to fully comprehensive assessments. They can actually pinpoint that and time isn't wasted. That plan can be implemented right away trying to help out the students.
1: There is a huge discrepancy that exists between these lower income areas and higher income areas. It's very unfortunate. um, That saying money does talk. It really does. You can see with the results that you get from these assessments that are already being held. Lower income areas typically perform at a much lower academic standard than higher income areas. I agree that Teachers in lower-income areas, they spend a lot of time with risk, at-risk students and small group instruction. And that's very unfortunate because a lot of that time could be used to benefit all students, especially if that time was used in a insufficient way. Like you were saying before, uh, students that are struggling, but then they're being taught something that they don't really need help with, or something that they don't can't even comprehend yet, is just a waste of time. Uh, we know that in reading instruction, there's a scientific method to become a better reader. And we need to get to those, we need to pinpoint those areas of need quickly and to provide that target instruction that's going to help our readers to develop.
0: I like how the part of you say where if teachers do not have a true grasp on what the students actually need or their struggles and areas of improvement, And this could lead to even greater delay in the student's outcome and the student learning because teachers might accidentally be targeting the wrong area of need when essentially they're, you know, take, for example, I could give an assessment to a student and out of this assessment is just a reading assessment and the student could have a low grade in reading comprehension, but what the test actually, what I should have been doing is maybe a more comprehensive assessment. And it actually reveals that maybe the student is actually struggling with consonants and vowels. Because if I were to read the story to them and they actually tell me the beginning, middle, end character, the moral themes, it's not actually comprehension. It's just maybe there's a struggle with a consonant and vowels. So if I don't give that... True, accurate, comprehensive assessment. Then I could be giving the wrong kind of intervention, the wrong kind of instruction to the students, and that's time wasted. That just could lead to an even bigger gap because I might not find out until later what the actual area of need that student requires. Um, so here's an, an analogy that I like to use because it makes sense and it's easy to understand. And that is the whole mechanic analogy. So you have a expensive, good mechanic, and then you have a cheap generic mechanic. So say there's something wrong with my car and I take it to the mechanic and say the cheap generic mechanic just tells me, oh, there's something wrong with your engine. I'm like, okay, great can you tell me what it is? And you say, no, that's it. And so I have to do some further investigation to figure out what is actually wrong with wrong with my engine. I know there's something wrong with the engine, but I don't know what exactly it is. So I need to either see another mechanic who hopefully tells me something, some more details about it. Maybe it's an actual part, through it, you know, a timing bell or whatever it may be. And on the opposite spectrum, you have a really good expensive mechanic who will pinpoint exactly what is wrong with, with my engine. And, is very specific. They have the whole diagnostics. They'll, you know, they'll tell you everything about your car and what exactly needs fixing. And, you know, that tells you you have to fix it by this time and day. You know, you can only drive it for certain thousands of miles as opposed to the cheap generic mechanical, just give you a very vague answer. So this is the analogy I like to use with the type of assessments. You have the really comprehensive, expensive assessments. And then you have the cheap generic ones that will kind of give you you know start pointing you in the right direction but if you really really want to help the students out you got, you need to go with the more expensive assessments and there was actually an example where generic assessments or generic yeah generic assessments actually had a negative outcome so there are there was an example where a test was created in California and it was about measuring earthquakes but since this assessment was administered in New England, the kids had no idea about what earthquakes were. They didn't know how to measure it because they never experienced earthquakes in their, in their lives. And this was a discrepancy there because this assessment was mainly created for states that have experienced an earthquake. And those students who are in the Midwest or other states like New England, they had no idea what this earthquake was and then they couldn't answer the question correctly and they got it wrong. And that was unfortunate. So if a school district was able to choose their own assessment, they could actually choose the assessments that best cater to or to their students.
1: I think that's a very good idea. And I think that is going to be highly beneficial and Also, it eliminates any kind of unfairness or bias that could have been or that has been taking place in the past on the types of assessments that are being given to students across America. Definitely for low income areas, these assessments that cater to them will be able to show and reveal to teachers and the districts what they really do know. And what they really do understand. And what they really can do. And that will be able to give us a better opportunity to serve them better in the future.
0: So I'm actually going to throw out some numbers. And this is goes back to the like whole cost of assessments. Now, there are price of assessment per student. So for example, New York, the average cost is $7 per student for an assessment. As opposed to Oregon, where it's 13 and Georgia is 14 and Delaware, it's as high as 73. And we can even go higher with Hawaii $105 in the District of Columbia. $114 per student is what it costs for an assessment. Obviously, there are some districts, there are some just there are some districts where they cannot afford that kind of money. $114 per assessment per student. And the school district has got to look at their funding, their budget, saying we can only afford X amount of assessments. And then you got to pick and choose which students really do. Well, you got to pick and choose which students this districts think need it the most. And these, this unfortunately leaves out a whole bunch of other students who could benefit from these assessments, but don't get it just because they're not in a certain category. Now, for for the school districts for so now when North Carolina chooses their new assessments. Some things that could happen because of this that might be a con only temporarily is that teachers will have to learn these new assessments and they would have to have a campus li- liaison. Who is trained in teaching these new assessments. It's obviously preferred if it's more than just one person. That way we're not putting all this strain and pressure on this single on this individual to teach the whole school or the whole district about these new assessments. It would be preferred if there's more than one person or some kind of professional development for the whole school districts. Right now it would have to be through Zoom or, or Google Meet, some kind of virtual training.
1: I strongly feel that there must be a campus liaison or a trained professional that uh, administers uh, the assessments and shows and teaches trained teachers at the school site how to administer these assessments and how to look at the data that will be revealed on these assessments. Only then will there be uh, accurate uh, data processing. Uh, we'll know that uh, the The assessment was implemented the way that it was supposed to be implemented and that there are no hookups or anything um, that didn't go by the book. And this way we could get the best uh, possible results for our students.
0: So when it comes to this whole professional development and trying to teach teachers this new assessment, do you think this is asking or even more responsibilities for the teachers because teachers are already doing a whole bunch of things with this whole COVID-19, like the quick transition overnight from in-class instruction to online, distance learning, e-learning. Do you think this is going to be an even bigger strain on teachers?
1: Absolutely.
0: Yes. Uh,
1: for the assessments that have been used in the past, uh, there hasn't really been much training. It's just something that the teachers administer and, uh, read directions for the students. Uh, Now that uh, a new assessment might be chosen by the districts, teachers are going to have to put in that time to be trained and to learn how to use those assessments to help students. And it's not something that happens overnight. It's something that the teachers will have to continually uh, keep up with so that uh, they will be um, obtaining to the standards of those assessments.
0: And with this being said, do you compensate teachers for learning new assessment format? Do you give them a stipend? Do you what do you do as a principal as a superintendent?
1: I believe that they should receive compensation for their learning. It's like learning, uh, going to college again, or learning something new, it takes time. And it's something that they're going to have to use to help their students and to serve their students and to serve the district. So most definitely they should be compensated. Now, going back to how much money the districts have, that's that's a good question. Will they be compensated? Or will they just be told to basically told to do what the district tells them to do?
0: I have heard about schools trying to Get rid of pass or no pass assessments. Do you agree with that? What do you know about this? Like getting trend about schools trying to get rid of the pass or no pass assessments?
1: I think that pass or no pass assessments uh, are not really beneficial for all students. I believe it gives students the notion or idea that. I can achieve at a minimal standard and pass and I believe that's a wrong message to be sending out to our students. Uh my hope is that we encourage and motivate our students to become high achievers, uh pro- good problem solvers and they'll grow into adults who continually take on the mission of lifelong learning who will definitely be a huge part of the world to come.
0: Okay. And can you think of examples? So say you and I are classmates and we're both in high school and we go to this pass or no pass assessment. If I'm usually getting A's in all my grades and my assessments or I'm in the top 25 percentile and I'm not making fun of you, but I say if you're <laughs> somewhere towards the middle, is it what what messages does that send about us both just getting a passing assessment, and we're no longer we're no longer separated? Like my efforts are no longer being reflected in these assessments. There's no longer a high score showing all the effort and work that I put into studying. Like say for example, maybe whether it's an SAT or the yeah, whether it's the AC the SAT score, the SAT or what's the other one called, the ACT.
1: ACT, that's correct.
0: So what happens if we just get rid of that and there's nothing, there's no score to show all this effort that I put into these assessments to show that I worked my butt off and we're just a pass or no pass. So what do you think? What do you think? What kind of message does that send?
1: I think the message that it sends is don't have to work hard anymore for You could just do the bare minimum and pass and be okay. If that's the message that's being sent out, I hope that we're prepared for a disaster waiting to happen in our society. Uh, I know for for myself that when I procrastinate or do things at a bare minimum, my results are not what I expected. They aren't good. Uh, They could have been better. I think there's a huge fear I would have if that message was being sent out to
0: all our Mm -hmm. students. Let me ask you about... Going back to North Carolina, choosing their own assessments. Do you see a situation where maybe in that school district, the schools choose different assessments and because they choose different assessments and how they compare the scores between, say, for example, all the elementary schools, because each school in that school district chose a different assessment. How are you going to compare the scores? How are you going to compare the grades? Are those scores still valid? Or do you choose something else where all the schools have to use the same assessment? That way we can actually compare, oh, we need to pour more effort and more funding, more resources into this school because the score says this.
1: Yeah, I think that there needs to be some type of alternative assessments for our students because if it's a one size fits all, we're going to have trouble. Not every student is the same. Not every student's needs are the same. And the way they can express their knowledge and understanding of lesson content can be different from the way their peer expresses what they know. We need to have alternative assessments available for our students in low-income areas. Because they might not have access to the resources available to them that are going to help them perform well on the standardized assessments provided by the state.
0: And just from our experience alone, Andrew and I both know that there is no one size fits all. We know one assessment does not work for every student. And the whole thing that Andrew, that I like that you brought up is alternative assessments. One of the alternative assessments ideas is project-based assessments where uh, students will work on maybe one or two projects to work during a semester or a quarter. And it really helps them work at their own pace, really represent the content and the best way that they know, whether it's a video, whether it's an audio, whether it's something written, uh, whether they create a model or something tactile, the best way that they can show their comprehension of the content is how these project-based assessments are going to work.
1: Project-based assessments are a great idea. It gives the flexibility needed, especially in these confusing times. I strongly feel that project-based assessments may be one of the key types of assessments that we're going to be implementing here in the very near future. And
0: when it comes to these project-based assessments... Uh, Essentially, what could happen is a teacher, if the students meet in school for the instruction and say, for example, the family doesn't feel safe having their students be in in class in classroom instruction and they rather do the distance learning, which is what an option what California is doing for those families who don't feel safe. They can opt in for the distance learning for the rest of however long this lasts. And if that's the case, what essentially a teacher could do is present the materials for the project, whether it's a packet and they mail it home, or someone from the households picks it up, or even just a digital version of it, kind of like in college, you give a syllabus. And they give the the instructions, the guidelines for the project-based assessment, and the student works at their own pace. There could be office hours as well with a teacher. And this can be an alternative for those who... Do not have stable internet connection at home because the teacher or the school can provide all the resources, all the materials printed out, uh, laid out already in a to go box or to go, to go package for those students who don't have access to the internet. So the teacher or the instructors, anybody could provide maybe printed out copies of articles or maybe already library books. All these informations, all these resources that might not be available to those households that don't have stable internet connection.
1: I think that's a great idea. Uh, You know that in our virtual classroom, there was students who continuously would freeze, uh, their screens would be frozen, and they would have to uh, start their computers over again, they would have to log out, log back in. And by that time, they already missed more than half the lesson. And they're not engaged, they're not focused, and they don't have access to the lesson content. And it's very sad because they were there. They tried and how discouraging that must be for the students to um, do everything they can possibly write, but fail because of Wi-Fi issue problems or Internet connection problems. So having those alternative assessments, those, uh, those packets, those uh, projects, whatever it may be uh, that can be made available to these households and these students, and they can have a set window and a time for them to complete it by, uh, I believe it will be greatly beneficial.
0: This whole thing about Wi-Fi, not everyone has access to Wi-Fi. Some families depend on public Wi-Fi. Uh, there's even families or even... Programs where the school districts or the local library provide these temporary free Wi Fi modems. And even if they have that, there are even families that have multiple people in the household, whether it's multiple children or other members of the family, and everyone's fighting over the Wi Fi, and the Wi Fi is a resource. And so everybody is fighting over this resource. Say, for example, a family of Five, and there's all these children that want to use the Wi-Fi for their distance learning and this is a big struggle and the alternative assessment could combat this for there could be a verbal assessment where it does rely on technology but not too much of a technology where Wi-Fi shouldn't be a, a big factor. So essentially what they could do is a parent or an adult in the house household can record the child reading a passage and this doesn't have to be done over zoom where a teacher's assessing a student right there uh, a student reading a passage on the computer screen they could the child could just record themselves reading a passage and could be emailed through a link as well or they could drop it off at the school again this is all for those families who do not want to go back to in-classroom instruction, because if there is classroom instruction, then assessments can be done right there in person. But again, not everybody's gonna be choosing that route. Um, So there's that flexibility with that as well. And with this flexibility, this shows that the teachers are there for the students. This shows that the teachers are willing to work with the families, are willing to work with the students, saying, hey, if this doesn't work, let's try something else. If this doesn't work, we have another option. I, as a teacher, want to be there to support you. I want to provide you with the resources and with the support. And I'll be your biggest cheerleader because I want to see you succeed. So we have many different options if this doesn't work. And so this whole flexibility of alternative assessment gives that message across that students are thinking, oh, hey, this teacher really does care about me. And the parents as well like, oh, wow, this teacher really cares about the education of my child.
1: What comes to mind is where there's a will, there's a way. Having that flexibility will ultimately provide a means of access for all students. I like what you said about how the students and their families will know that the teacher cares. Uh, Absolutely. This type of flexibility will involve more teacher preparation, longer hours of work. But in the end, it's worth it. It's what we signed up for. It's why we became teachers. And that is to serve our
0: students in the best way possible. And that extra effort that teachers put Students and families, they notice that they notice that, oh, wow, this teacher put in this extra effort to print out all the copies for me. Oh, wow. The teacher translated it for me. Oh, wow. They did a voiceover recording or an interactive or modifications or adaptions. They they notice that effort that we put in. And I think they really do appreciate that. And because they see that extra that extra effort that we're putting in then that leads to more student buy-in. They're more invested in their educational progress because they see we're invested. Then they think, oh, I should be invested as well because I don't want to do a a bare minimum job. And teachers don't want to do a bare minimum job because if you're just there, if you're a teacher who only wants to do the bare minimum, then I don't want to be the first one to tell you this, but then this profession is not for you. If you just want to go by doing the bare minimum and barely want to see any progress in the students' growth, then this is not for you. you want to see that growth. You want to put in that effort because at the end of the day, it's all worth it. If Jimmy was struggling with this and by the end of the school year, even they're not struggling with that anymore. Even if they failed in all other subjects and all of the content areas, if they progress in this one thing, and then that's victory. For, for me as an educator. And that's a victory for the students and the family as well. It's something they've been struggling with all school year and they made that improvement. That is a big victory lap that I'm doing around the house for that student. Now, with alternative assessment, it also gives students more ways of showing their mastery in the content. And a way of doing this is by having them build digital portfolios and this helps out with their text avenues and they also get to see their own work because there is going to kind of, there is going to come a time in place when they have to create their own portfolio for whatever it is, whether it's art, whether it is uh, job applications. I mean, as teachers, we have our own work portfolios. Photographers have their own work portfolios, actors, engineers, doctors, you have your own work portfolio where you want to show off your best work and having a place where to store all that is very convenient. What do you think about these digital portfolios being used as alternative assessments?
1: Digital portfolios are a great idea. I agree that they're going to help students see what they're doing. They're gonna have a chance to assess their work. Uh, They're going to be more interested, more invested in completing their work, just like somebody or anybody that has something in the beginning. Not too big, something small, but you keep adding to it. There's a sense of pride. There's a sense of joy that comes from making that little something of nothing into something big and beautiful.
0: And with the whole digital portfolios, I like how students are able to see their own work. And this could even lead to student self assessments where they go back and their whole revision process, like we do with writing, they could revise their work and saying, oh, compare something from the beginning of the school year to the end of the school year. And they can see that before and after. And you can really see that progress. And this is something that students can even see themselves. They don't have to wait to report cards. They can see the progress themselves right there immediately. And parents can have access to this. And I think it's really beneficial for students to see it right there in live time and they can even graph it or, or chart it, some kind of visualization of their progress. Where the students make it themselves again leads to more student buy-in. They keeps them really engaged as opposed to back in the day, maybe where students used to believe, "Oh, like oh, I do this x amount of work and you know, click, click, click." Teacher pops out a magic number. That's my score. No, the whole goes back to the students don't get grades; they earn grades, and the students can actually see the grades that they earn with these assessments. They see their work, their beginning, they see their journey.
1: Absolutely. Students taking ownership of their learning and being responsible for the type of work that they need to complete, being proactive in taking care of their work, saving their work, looking back at their work, all leads to the development of their academic growth, uh,
0: their skills and their mastery. You're so right about that. Now, Andrew, as we wrap this episode up, I am going to leave it up to you whether or not, is there any advice that you would like to share for future teachers or those who are thinking about entering the field of education? Is there any advice you would give to them?
1: Yes. The advice I'd like to give to any future educators out there is that the mountain may seem high, but it's possible to climb it just one step at a time and remembering what's on top of that mountain and what's on top of that mountain is why you started the process of wanting to become a teacher in the first place. Never give up, keep going and you'll
0: get there. All right. Thank you so much. This has been Teachers Care Society. I want to say thank you to my guests, Andrew Hong. And most importantly, thank you to you, the listeners. See you next time.